Welcome to part three of our four-part series talking about creatively overcoming innovation bias using the logistics market as an example. Last time, we finished our deep dive into understanding bias and how it holds us back. We talked about neuroplasticity, fear, habits, and resistance to change. Today, we're going to explore our creativity with some simple and fun tools to move forward to unleash innovation. Creatively Overcoming Habits. So what are some of the ways that we can move beyond our bias and do it with a little bit of fun and creativity? Well, first we need to understand the natural way to move things forward. We talked about fail, first attempt at learning, and try it if it doesn't work, stop, move on to the next thing. We also need to consider having others as part of that. We need help to move our rivers. We need encouragement, we need safety when we do that. And I want you to think about that encouragement, that safety, and when we really apply that to people who fail a lot and we don't even realize it. Let's talk about babies taking their first step. Babies, they, they get all of this constant attention, it's all affirmation, they really can't do anything wrong, and they just do all of these amazing things and we're marveled about how quickly they progress. And then, when it's time to learn how to walk, we're constantly encouraging them. We don't scold them if they miss a step or where they fall down. It's constant encouragement, get back up. Here, let me hold your hands. You can hold onto my fingers. I'll walk with you. But right around the time that we become toddlers and we start to undergo potty training, that starts to go away. Now we start to introduce negative when we don't do something right. Now we get some scolding. Now it's not that constant affirmation of the person. Now there's negativity or positivity assigned to the actual thing that took place. And that's why for some, body training is an absolute nightmare. Now in both of those instances with the babies taking their first steps or, or the potty training, it's really the first time for these individuals in life doing something that they've never done. But why don't we give that same consideration to adults why aren't we encouraging them the same way? Let me give you a different example. When my youngest brings home some type of artwork, most people's response would be, look at the art regardless of what it is, praise it, and, and tell the person, oh, you did such a fantastic job, let's hang it on the fridge. Okay, that's nice. But what if instead of when he brings that artwork home, I set it to the side for just a moment, and tell him, hey, great job today at school. I hope you learned a lot. Did you have some fun? And I make it about him first, and then look at the artwork and say, oh, look, you did something in a bonus, something extra, something else. You tried something else. Do you think we should hang this on the fridge? I affirmed him as a person first. I didn't make the positive that he's gonna get from me about the artwork. And I involved him in the decision of, is this good enough to go into the fridge? Without him having to feel a need of being right or wrong. It's a different way of viewing it. And that's what you really need to try. So I'm gonna give you something you can try in your office. If somebody is going to do a presentation, they've been working on it for a while, and you know they have, and they want you to review it. 
when that person comes in to your space or you go to their space to review it, before they start the presentation, tell them, hey, I know you've been working on this really hard. Good job with that. I appreciate you putting that time in. And then look at the presentation. And it's going to feel awkward for many of you. It's that small step of that little change where you're reaching out first, you're setting the example first that can lead to really big actions and results, not only for you, but for them as well. You're extending your river to them and they don't even realize it. And that's the best way to do it. Now, at first they might be a little bit like, oh, okay, what, what's going on with this? But as we will get into when we talk about communication, if you're consistent, it'll work. Action crushes fear. It's the action that allows it to work. Because action crushes fear. And it's that small action, it's that small little nudge outside of our comfort zone that elicits new raindrops to form new rivers. The difference is you're being deliberate now about which raindrops are coming in and how that might define your river. And when we're deliberate about it, that means we're, we're really thinking about it, we're really conscious about it. We can also figure out when that river might need to be truncated, when we can stop and just move on, when we can let go of being right. That comes from experience. We tried it out, it was a good experience. We're gonna try it out a little bit more and we're gonna gain some competency. Once we have competency, then we get into self-belief. That allows for self-esteem. Now we can really get into the understanding of it. And it's when we understand that confidence about what we're doing really comes out. And you know what happens when you're confident? You tend to be motivated. And motivation allows for more action. The difference is you have to find the positive motivations, right? Fear is a motivator. If I don't do this, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job. I am therefore motivated to do this. But that elicits just enough to maintain where you are. It's the positive that allows for transformation. And that's where that fun and that openness really come into play. Three goals in three months. So let me give you a tool. And in fact, of all of the people that I've talked with across the globe, this is usually the tool that people will come back and say, this absolutely made a difference. And it's something that you can do for work and home. And the fun part about it is when you first start to do this, you absolutely don't have to be right. You do have to prioritize though. And here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get a simple piece of paper and on that paper, you're gonna write one, two, and three. And you're gonna write out something that you're going to do within the next three months, but you cannot accomplish in a single day. And you're gonna prioritize them, one, two, and three. You get two sentences to describe them. So you're gonna to have to be very, very crisp in what you're putting down. And it's something that can be accomplished in three months, even if your brain says, well, that would probably actually take me a year, but if I really focused on it, I could do it in 90 days. 
Well, you're going to really focus on it. And there's going to be some rules. The first rule is you're going to take those three things that have one or two sentences in description and you're going to put them onto a post-it note. All three. So that means you're going to have to condense them. And what you're going to do is you're going to take that post-it note and you're going to stick it somewhere that you pass frequently and that you pass relatively early in your day. My preference is a bathroom mirror. Some people use the door frame of their bedroom, wherever it is. And every single time you pass that note, you must stop and out loud in a very vocal voice, read it out loud. Every single time. If you fail to do that, and this requires some discipline, it also requires some honesty from yourself about yourself. You need to stop, write it out three more times, and stick them in three more prevalent places. And every time you pass any of those notes, you have to stop and say them out loud. And you can't take the notes down until you've accomplished at least the first two things on your note. That is transformative because of what it does, not only to your neuroplasticity, but also to your habits. It's starting to break down that automation. It is also keeping you accountable to yourself because you're saying it constantly. Again, the vocal part is extraordinarily important. It's important enough that I would encourage you to get others involved. Bring them into what you're doing. For me, if the kids don't hear me do that, they get a bounty. If they call me out and I didn't do it, they get, they get a dollar every time. If you're at work, if you don't have anybody that you happen to live with, then put these where you have to see them at work. Say them out loud. Get your coworkers involved. Turn it into a little bounty where after so many times of getting called out, you have to buy somebody lunch. Bring others into it. That will help you keep you accountable to what you're trying to do. It is also a fantastic mechanism for showing people that you're okay being uncomfortable because being called out and vocalizing your goals is, for most people, uncomfortable. So you're leading by example. And what that's really going to do is allow you to break down some barriers to communication. Already invented elsewhere. Let's look at another tool before we get into communication on how to be a little bit more creative about our approach. And it's called Already Invented Elsewhere. So we're really just going to steal some ideas from other places on how to accomplish something. So I'll tell you a quick story. In 1996, the Olympic team for the US just crushed all sorts of uh, records in swimming. They went to Speedo and said, hey, we need to be faster. And we recognize where we lose most of the time is in the turn. So Speedo said, okay, let's look at that. And they started to look at, well, what's really fast in water? Speedboats, torpedoes, how about sharks? And sharks are incredibly fast in water. What makes them so fast is their ability to accelerate and almost stop on a dive. And that was really what the Olympic team was looking for. 
And what they discovered was these microscopic sharp little pimples that trap air and allow for when inflated to stop and when deflated, the skin just becomes super smooth and the shark can go. So they designed a swimsuit around that. And it increased the advantage to the US Olympic team so much that it actually got banned. Five C's of communication. Communication barriers are the number one issue. Number one issue for any company that's been in existence for more than two years and has more than five employees. On average, it costs around $5,000 per employee per year. In logistics, that cost is even higher because let's face it, most of your business is a communication about ABC making it to place one, two, three. Mess up that communication and it's costly. What if we took that already invented elsewhere and applied it to our barriers in communication, including language? So what I did is applied that to how people in the foster care system, because I'm a foster parent, really can help kids that have undergone so much trauma, whose neuroplasticity is so rooted in fear and distrust. And I can tell you the techniques we're about to discuss work. And if they can work on individuals in that severe of a situation, think what they can do for people that haven't undergone that. We're gonna talk about the five C's of communication. They are calm, caring, clear, concise, and consistent. And I'm gonna do this through a story of my now 16 year old. When he first came to me uh, at 11, he had a very horrible past. He had been in the system for two years. He was contemplating suicide. And he came to me actually just for a single weekend to give him a bit of a break away from his foster family who wasn't the best in the world. And we'll just kind of leave it at that. So what I did was I made sure it was very apparent that I was eagerly, eagerly <laughs> awaiting him at the door. He could see that I was at the door as they pulled up. I greeted him, had him come in along with his worker. Now, usually what happens when they first walk in the door after everybody says hi is you go and do paperwork. That's usually what happens. That's not how I do it. First thing that we did was we walked to my bedroom where I sat down on my bed, making sure that I was lower than his eye level. I had the worker come into the room and allowed him to stand in the door. I made sure I was making a lot of eye contact and I slowed my voice down. I let it go a little bit deeper, almost like that late DJ voice. And I made sure he understood that I was calm. Now at first that didn't do much for him, but I was calm. And what I did was I explained what I knew about him, which wasn't much. And I told him I deliberately didn't get more because I wanted him to tell me what he wanted me to know about him and that we would learn about each other together. I also told him if he wanted to read my history, I would give it to him gladly and he could read it but I wasn't going to read his. And in that moment, two things happened. He raised his eyebrows, he was a little surprised, but then 
He let his hands go from fidgeting in front of him. He just went to the side. He became calmer. Why is that? Because I demonstrated a level of care for him as a person, respecting his ability to learn and not be about me and not be judged because I read something about him. And you know what you read about kids in those reports? The negative things. Maybe one positive thing, but the vast majority, the pages and pages are all negative. I took that away. He could be him, and I would accept him at face value. That, in addition to me eagerly awaiting him at the door, showed that I was caring. When he started to speak, I was really impressed and I was listening to his words. And in doing so, I found a clearer way to communicate with him. I started using his words. I started doing things in threes when I would talk with him about different things. And it was along with being concise that really moved the conversation forward. I wasn't getting into all sorts of details. It was XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. And very quickly, he started to mimic that. He started to present himself that way. And without realizing it, he naturally took off his coat and the scarf that he was wearing in the middle of May, and it was already quite warm outside, started to relax without recognizing it. I was making that calm presentation in a caring way with very clear and concise language. Now what has worked over time with him is that I've been very consistent with that. To this day, I'm very consistent in how I approach what is going on with him. And I can tell you that his teachers, even within spans of a few months, see his evolution. He still has the trauma. And I don't want anybody having a false expectation of what's going to happen to your neuroplasticity and your bias. It will always be there. What we're trying to do is understand it so that when we can recognize it, right, through that emotion, we can actually do something about it to move past it. And it's that recognition of that emotion that will win the day. Think about an argument you were having with somebody and in that argument, you both started shouting, and at the end, neither of you remembered what you were actually arguing about. You know, a, a two-minute conversation like that is just an explosion of hormones into our body, especially the stress hormone cortisol. And just a two-minute explosion can actually allow for seven hours of stress in your system. Seven hours. And you don't remember what it was about, but you're stressed out for the next seven hours. And just that by itself, I think, is worth recognizing and learning how to take that step back so that you can present in a caring, authentic manner so that you can recognize when you're trying to connect with somebody that you don't want to be intimidating. You want to be on their level maybe a little bit lower. You need to be eager with them. You don't want any physical barriers between you and them so that you can connect with them. And then you can continue to connect with them by using simple terms, by using their words, by being concise and talking about three points 
and then following it all up with consistency. It turns out that people will view inconsistency as a broken promise. It's instability, and we don't like that. We would prefer something that's predictable, something that's consistent. When we are consistent in how we communicate, and that's the key, in that communication, that emotional connection, we actually will start to move faster in going into areas of the unknown. We can actually allow for cultural transformation to take place, but it does require openness and persistence of presence from you. Reframing slash how else. I want to talk about a tool to actually help with that communication bias that helps bring out a positive emotion to flip other people's perceptions to understand what's happening. A master of this was Walt Disney. As miraculous as it is that it only took 364 days from groundbreaking to day opening for Disneyland in 1955, one of the things that's even better about Disney is how they reframe scenarios. Now I'm gonna give you an example. About a month or so before opening day, the head landscape artist, notice he's the head landscape artist, not the gardener, came to Walt and said, we have a problem. There's no way I'm gonna finish all of what I need to do because of all of the de-weeding that needs to take place and that's gonna actually put me well out of budget if I have to hire more people to do it. Walt said, let's go for a walk. And they walked and they looked and Walt saw what he had done and he praised what it was already done. And he turned to him and said, what if we got little placards and put the Latin name for all of the different species in the flower beds? Could you do that? And the head landscaping artist is like, yeah, I could do that with a little bit of a question of where are you going with this? And I just told you I'm already running short of time. He's like, okay, great. So why don't we identify all of the weeds too and just put in placards? And the head landscaping artist in the moment got it, right? The guests would think it's intentional. They wouldn't notice that it wasn't. They wouldn't notice that they weren't ugly flowers. They would think that's an intentional planting. And they moved forward. And that's exactly what they did. And then over the course of opening, as things started to progress, they started to change out the weeds and put in the flowers that were supposed to be there. How about the fact that when you go into Disney, you aren't a, a customer, you're a guest. Think about the difference on how you feel and how you interact with guests in your home versus a customer. Aren't you more open with your guests? A little bit more emotional with your guests? A little bit more honest with your guests? Not in that you're trying to deceive a customer, just being more yourself. It's that flipping, right? That elicits just that little bit different intention of thought, which elicits a different emotion. So let me tell you another story. It's a little bit more personal. Uh, while I was doing some consulting, I was in New York City. It was the first time I had ever been in New York. And I walk into a bu building to meet with Paul. Um, this is during my oil and gas days. And I'm sitting there and I'm chatting with the receptionist. And you know, there's conversations where you just instantaneously connect with somebody, right? Where the conversation is just magical and you just have a lot of fun with it. We're probably chatting for 15 to 20 minutes. And Paul came down and waved at me and I said goodbye and walked over to him. And as we're walking up the steps, because we're only going to the second floor, I turned to Paul and I'm like, Paul, you have the most remarkable receptionist. 
And he stopped and he looked at me, he's like, you don't have a receptionist. And he kind of had a smile on his face. And I'm like, um, okay. Now in my head, remember this is my first time in New York City, my bias said, uh, were we just talking to a crazy person for the last 15 to 20 minutes? So I said, what a, the, the lady at the desk with the polka dot shirt, she's like, oh, Sarah, yeah, she's our director of first impressions. Wow. I mean, talk about an appropriate title for this person. I, I loved it. I still love it. I still think of Sarah because the empowerment that they gave her by making her title the director of first impressions, she took it and ran. She did the absolute best at being the director of first impressions. And it's a tool that struck me as being so powerful in our communication that it allows for transformation of people in how they do things. And if you're a leader, and understand when I define leadership, I don't mean somebody that just has a title. You need to do this for other people to improve them. And when you're improving them, what you're going to discover is you're actually improving yourself too. Especially if you reframe yourself. Join me next time for our last part as we look at how discomfort can help prevent our bias from taking over. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the last part of our discussion. And if you can, please leave a comment, a review, and a like. I certainly would appreciate it. Cheers.